Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Joy of Financial Planning podcast. The topics of this podcast are a complement to the book, Joy of Financial Planning, available in stores including Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Joy of Financial Planning is about the belief that we can overcome the unique economic and life challenges we face as a generation by first getting our financial house in order. In fact, we have no other choice. Now more than ever, we must grow our wealth, follow our passions, live with compassion, and find a way to achieve a personalized version of the American dream. Just as it has been in prior generations, the ideal of the American dream is being challenged, not just because of the novel coronavirus pandemic, but because of the callous murder of a fellow black man, George Floyd, that we all got to see. The example of his abuse, and that of many others, cuts through the core of the American dreams I have believed in all of my life. I have a persistent belief that all are created equal, worthy of respect, deserving of opportunity, and the ideals of the American dream live inside all of us. I thank you for supporting dreams, your dreams, by listening to this podcast. The purpose of this content is to educate listeners and for them to inform others. This episode is part of a series of recorded Zoominars from my Jason Howell Company YouTube channel. That's where you'll find the video versions. In my business life, my wealth management firm collaborates with many experts. Together, we transform regular investors into patriarchs and matriarchs of their families and their communities. This episode features some of that expertise. Please send your feedback to jason at jasonhowell.com and give this episode a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts, if that's the kind of thing you do. For more about my unique brand of family wealth management, just go to jasonhowell.com. And now, what exactly is stakeholder capitalism? With yourstake.org co-founder, Gabe Risman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Jason Howell Company Speaker Series Zoominars. My name is Jason Howell, and as always, I'm excited to share some of the people in our network, especially the people that we may work with to service some of our clients. There are just so many great people out there, and as financial planners, we have a wonderful opportunity to work with people and, and bring them all and build that team. Today, we've got a great episode. We've got Gabe Risman from yourstake.org. And we're going to learn a little bit about stakeholder capitalism and what they are doing to make that a real thing as opposed to something that's amorphous, really get into some of the data. But before we do that, let's just meet Gabe. Gabe, how are you doing today? Jason, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I am. Do, I love that you asked that question, by the way. Uh, I'm excited to do my first ever Facebook Live event. That's pretty cool. Uh, feeling refreshed after Memorial Day weekend, got to spend some time with my family. So I'm feeling great and uh, really glad to be speaking with you too. You are such a huge supporter of your stake. And and I also am a big fan of everything that you're doing, wow, spreading the you. word about ESG and like taking it really seriously and uh, going all in on stakeholder capitalism and, and impact. Well, welcome, Gabe. Um, I'm so glad you feel that way. The feeling is mutual for sure. 
I'm uh, so glad that you're so smart and that we can leverage uh, your mind for the kind of things that we're trying to do as a firm. And I think a lot of us are trying to do just as a community, but we, we don't want to be embarrassed, right? We want to be able to say we're doing this and it's, it's not a political thing. It's just a thing that we're doing for the good. And mm -hmm. uh, again, not feel embarrassed, not feel silly about it. So I'm glad you're here and I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. Well, I know one person has come aboard so far. Um, as people kind of ping in, we will, I will hear that ding at least, and I'll let them into the Zoominar here. Regardless, this is going to be recorded. We're going to have it available. It'll live forever on Facebook site, and it'll hopefully also live forever on YouTube. So I hope uh, the folks not only watching live, but the people that watch it later are going to enjoy it. All right. With that, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And if you came to Stakeholder Capitalism by yourstake.org, or if you're just swimming by Facebook and you're interested in seeing a really cool conversation, then you've come to the right place. We are so happy to have Gabe Risman here, co-founder of yourstake.org and so many other interesting little organizations. But before we get to some of the Q&A, let's just get a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor today is the Jason Howell Company. Jason Howell Company is an independent family wealth management firm that uses sustainable, responsible, and impact investing to develop family leaders into patriarchs, matriarchs, and stakeholders of their local communities. Most of our clients are double income, Gen X parent households who have earned, saved, and or inherited an unexpected amount of income or wealth, and they're interested in philanthropy, and they want their investments to perform, and they want to serve the greater good. And so there's a lot that goes into the kind of folks that we bring in. We just know they want to do something special with their lives. And that happens to include their resources. For more about Jason Howell Company, just go to jasonhowell.com. And now the star of our show, Mr. Gabe Risman from yourstake.org. Once again, we are so, so happy to have you. I know any of you that are here watching saw the newsletter, you saw the bio. For those of you that are just watching this via some of the social media, well, here is his bio. I won't read it out loud, but I will pick out a couple of things that just strike me. Uh, the first thing here is computational astrophysics. You might need a degree just to be able to say that phrase. And I have a degree, thankfully. So I was able to say the phrase, but please, uh, Gabe, can you tell us about computational astrophysics and what the heck that has to do with ESG, SRI, impact investing? Sure. So... Uh, first, I have to bring up the elephant in the room, which is my hair. I, I did cut it since this photo was taken and a lot of people miss it, but I'm glad I don't have to worry about shedding or anything like that anymore. It's a lot to manage. Uh, we, and... will, we will miss it. And uh, I, you know, I might have saved that for last or something. But this is an important photo. Uh, where was this, Gabe? I should, we should just talk about it. Sure. This was in, uh, in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Uh, right outside, I live about 90 second walk from Prospect Park. It's kind of the one place that I feel is wild within New York City um, to some degree. So you get out uh, there a lot. Yeah, I, I try to get there every single day for at least a deep breath. OK, wow. Terrific. Prospect Park, you said. Mm -hmm. OK, terrific. All right. Now, computational astrophysics, please. Sure. So I did my thesis on something called dark matter halos um, and dark matter halos is um, essentially dark matter. Uh, is this stuff that surrounds every single galaxy that we can't see, but we know it's there because it influences everything else that's around it. So my question was, 
how can we look at the motion of stars and the motion of galaxies to understand how dark matter forms around them. Um, so that's what I did. And, and uh, a lot of times physics is theoretical and it's kind of writing equations, figuring that stuff out. But for computational astrophysics, a lot of it is just doing data analysis. So we have all this data about all the galaxies that exist in the, in the known universe. And then we look at how they're moving, how, the, how big they are, what their brightness is, all that stuff. And we take that information to be able to uh, process huge, large data sets and come up with insights about how the world actually works and, and how that relates to ESG. ESG is a very similar thing, tons of information, tons of data out there, but uh, it's just this big soup and it takes a lot of uh, processing and analysis to be able to generate insights that actually help you understand what's going on in the world. Dark matter to ESG, fair. I don't think anyone has the capability to argue with that. So we've, <laughs> we've started out pretty well here. Uh, terrific. Well, how about uh, the academic papers that you've written? So much has sort of been labeled around ESG as maybe just amorphous, uh, not necessarily credible. And here you're writing academic papers. Number one, are you the only person that's done that? And number two, what inspired these? Sure. So th there's actually a really growing field of academic papers uh, that are focused on ESG and socially responsible investing and impact. Um, the, the biggest one that I wrote actually informed Real Impact Tracker, which uh, is, is an organization that I co-founded um, before your stake. And this academic paper was focused on the question of how can I create the most impact through investing? And it really came from this massive debate that was going on uh, in 2016 in particular around, should I divest to create impact from fossil fuels or private prisons or whatever it may be? Or should I focus on shareholder engagement? And if I, uh, stakeholder capitalism, if I'm a shareholder or a stakeholder uh, in a company, how can I use my voice to create impact and push that company to change? Then there's also the question of ESG integration or community investing or venture capital or whatever it may be. And there was just so much going on that uh, my question was, all right, well, wh what's the best? What should we actually do? What actually works? What doesn't just make you feel good, but creates impact? So the first academic paper that we did was a review uh, of a whole bunch of literature across uh, many different domains, looking at the impact, not just of, for example, shareholder engagement on environmental and social issues, but how investors have pushed companies to change their financial results and improve their government governance and what divestment has done um, to companies and how changes in stock price and changes in per public perception are in all interrelated. So that was the, the main thesis of the first academic paper or the, the uh, not the first actually, but the major academic paper that I wrote, what can we all do? And the conclusion that we kind of came to four years ago is um, starting to come to fruition, which is really exciting uh, and still very relevant. The conclusion is that um, what will allow for the most impact is essentially ESG investors becoming and behaving like the, the majority instead of the minority. So for decades and decades and decades, there have been people that have focused on socially responsible and ESG investing. And they've been oftentimes small players that have punched way above their weight and pushed companies to change. 
but in order to create massive scale uh, and and massive impact at like economy wide scale, um, the power that comes from having coordinated ESG and having a critical point and a larger number of investors in ESG, uh, that is something that can actually change the world in a, in really substantial ways. So your stake kind of is a is a result of that uh, paper where wow. we then looked at, okay, well, what are the challenges? Why are we not reaching scale? Why do 80% of people want to, or, or more, depending on the study that you see, want to align their investments with their values? But again, depending on the study, only 10 to 30% of people actually do that. Like, what is the cause of this gap? How can we take ESG from minority to majority and uh, really unleash the impact that can come from that? Yeah, and one of the first webinars I was on was financial advisors are the reason for the gap. I think it's about 6% of advisors have any belief in any of this, but as you stated, 80 to 90%, depending on what study you look at, of investors are interested in this. And so, you know, it's the people at the door that tend to be more resistant than the people writ large, which is incredible, just incredible. Well, before we move off your bio, uh, the, the other elephant in the room, or I should say bulldog in the room, is your attendance at Yale. I mean, that's exciting. Not many people have gone to Yale that are alive anyway. Um, those who do, uh, we, we kind of look at them with, uh, you know, some interest. So tell us, how did you get yourself to Yale? I mean, why, why that school? And what did you think of it? Sure. I, I really love my experience there. It was, everyone was interested in everything pretty much. So you, you would have conversations. I was part of a book club and we were just, everyone would bring in articles or, or books or movies or whatever it may be. So I guess it wasn't strictly a book club, but people just love to uh, essentially share knowledge from one domain like biology and see how this biological information is relevant to investing or is relevant to economics or is relevant to um, philosophy or whatever else it may be. So uh, that was kind of what drew me to it and um, I also, um, I think it might be a Mark Twain quote, and apologies if I'm, I'm misquoting, but there is a really great quote about, uh, don't let your schooling get in the way of your education. <laughs> and I, okay. I kind of live by that. I, I worked hard in, in classes, but I spent most of my time in extracurriculars as a climate activist pushing for Yale to divest from fossil fuel companies, which it actually now just followed those recommendations and did about a month ago. Uh, nine years after we proposed it. Nine years. And, well, hey, they're an old company. They're an old school. Yeah, it's true. It, 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 well, that's the thing about big ships. It takes a long time to steer them, but there's a lot of impact when, when you do. Um, so yeah, I, I love that I got the chance to really explore a ton of climate activism and socially responsible investing uh, outside of the classroom that we were given the resources and support to be able to do that and learn in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. And the Yale Endowment is famous in investing circles, uh, certainly set the pace for other universities, nonprofits, even some pensions. There is the Yale way of investing. And uh, the gentleman who really was the catalyst for that passed away just recently. Isn't that right? Last month, I think. It was, I think, two or three weeks ago also. And I would also just like to say, so David Swenson was always extremely respectful uh, anytime we as activists came and spoke with him. Um, and I really love what he's done uh, to grow the endowments of a lot of nonprofit institutions and universities that have followed in his lead, which uh, helps people 
learn. It helps these educational institutions accomplish their mission. So I'm a, a big David Swenson fan. Uh, he treated people with respect and, and really listened to what we had to say as activists. So, um, yeah, oh, I just wanted to, to hear that. It's great yeah. to hear that indeed. Rest in peace, David Swenson. Rest in peace. Yeah. All right. Uh, now we'll get to the Q&A portion of our conversation. Thank you so much, Gabe, for sharing a little of your background. I mean, we made the hair even bigger on this slide. And so we just <laughs> had to get to know you before, before we popped out here. Uh, but the first question, I think, is on the, the lips of everyone who either is going to be watching this later or are watching it now is really, what is your definition of stakeholder capitalism? Sure. So stakeholder capitalism is incorporating all of the ways that a company or the economic system has impact. What are all the downstream effects and the upstream effects of, of every interaction that happens? For me, I see stakeholder capitalism as two primary distinct or, or different things from what you might normally think of as a capitalist system. The first is it's much more holistic. Um, it doesn't look at companies in isolation. It looks at systems and it looks at how uh, companies might be rewarded or, or not for their contributions within the entire economy, what their externalities are, if they're providing public good, how they're treating their employees, everything like that. And the second, which is kind of related, is it's not just a more holistic way of looking at capitalism spatially, um, but we'll go into some of the physics. Uh, uh -oh. We've got well, the spatial dimension, and then we also have the time dimension. Uh, so that's really important too, is stakeholder capitalism has tended to be much more long-term focused. So uh, I would say probably the best way to describe stakeholder capitalism is with an example. A company that is focused on stakeholder capitalism is not focused on their short-term profits, but instead it's focused on what will provide the most long-term value to uh, employees, to shareholders, to communities, to really everyone that's involved. You know, when you we think of this concept, does it seem like it's a, a brand new concept to you? Or does it seem like we kind of need this concept as a reminder? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would have to think that actually capitalism in its earliest form was probably more focused on stakeholder capitalism. Um, I think capitalism kind of grew a lot of times out of it was, it was really interconnected with the government and was a more efficient way uh, to be able to accomplish particular goals. And then I think um, the revolution, um, the thought revolution led by Milton Friedman drove that focus to more shareholder capitalism. Uh, and I actually think that you can stick within the Milton Friedman shareholder capitalism model and uh, still have a much, much more of a focus on ESG and social impact knowing that shareholders are also people and want to be able to live in a, a world that exists uh, and that's free of discrimination and that's free of gender violence and that's free of human rights abuse. Like shareholders don't just value profits. Shareholders are people that value all these things as well. Um, and long-term, whatever is best for mm -hmm. just like promoting the economy is best for shareholders. So I don't, I, I, I think my contrary opinion a little bit is that there's, there shouldn't be that much of a difference between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism. They kind of should converge into what's best for society and for long-term values of shareholders and, and also stakeholders as well. 
You know, I, I agree with that opinion. And a couple of the people that we've had on these Zoominars before uh, look for a day when it's no longer, you know, ESG or SRI investing, but when it's just called investing mm-hmm. and for the very same reasons. And this conflict between short-termism, you know, quarterly reporting uh, versus long-termism is pretty old. And most value investors, of which we are with our clients, value investors have long thought that, you know, investing for the long term is the way to go. I mean, that's even ridiculous to say it out loud. Of course, we're value investors, but even most investors who are not just, you know, trading at the end of the day and back and forth and, you know, your day traders, uh, most of those real investors, I would say, are looking at the long term. But yes, we have an entire industry that really does point to that short term more and more. You know, there was an old book out there. I think it's the early O's by the uh, late great um, sort of founder of the Vanguard Fund. So he wasn't actually the founder, but Jack Bogle. And it was called Saving the Soul of Capitalism. And I'm, I'm just a few chapters into it, but it is very much about this conflict between short-termism and long-termism. And uh, he was you know, he was known as the patron saint of, uh, of the kind of investing that many of us believe in. So it is interesting yeah. to see this continue. And well, Jason, I- I'd love to hear your thoughts, oh. particularly on something like Vanguard. Sure. Vanguard's awesome in providing low cost ETFs for a lot of people to be able to access and uh, participate in the financial system in ways that they couldn't before Bogle. He's really a pioneer and it's awesome. Um, Vanguard also invests in every single company in the economy. Right. And um, I wonder what you think about Vanguard's like incentives and, and Vanguard stewardship practices and policies where uh, do you think that investors that in, are investing in the whole economy have uh, the incentive and uh, would, it be, would it behoove them to push for broader stewardship to eliminate externalities? Like if you're investing in ExxonMobil and and or sorry, you're investing in some petrochemical company that's polluting a river, and you're also investing in all these companies downstream on that river. Um, that's not the most efficient thing. Maybe the best thing to do is to not just get the one company upstream to maximize its profits, but to think about things on a portfolio level. And how do you think about things on like a, an economy-wide portfolio level, or do you see any investors that are taking that approach? Um, maybe some of the the fund managers that you work with or that you're familiar with? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> you know, there, there's, uh, so first, your questions around Vanguard. In, in this area, it's tough to be one of the biggest. You know, BlackRock has this challenge as well. And, and we look at all these funds when we're evaluating clients. Thanks to yourstake.org, we can really see uh, what the delta is between funds that call themselves ESG and funds that are just, you know, good funds. And we don't have to look at the moniker to make that decision. We can see the data, which is really why I'm so happy that you are here and that you know astrophysics. Um, <laughs> but you know what the challenge that the big firms have and that many large firms have is that there are five areas of you know what we call ESG integration. And part of that can be screening out bad companies, one. Another area could be screening in good companies, two. Uh, Another can be looking at themes, but another one of those, and and maybe one of the more important ones is going to be proxy voting and, you know, that kind of activism and what you're doing. And there are conflicts for the larger funds that we 
need to parse through and, and work with our clients when that's the case, because there, there are reports of not as much support for the issues that at least the funds uh, are descriptive of saying that they care about. But like you say, there's some downstream effects and there are other companies that they're participating in. So it becomes a real challenge to say that the firm writ large, the, the organizations writ large, these brokerages writ large are wholly supportive of the kind of investing that we're talking about. And in reality, I guess they can't be because they are the market. And right now, one third mm. is huge. One third of all investing, about $20 trillion, is really pointed towards the kind of investing ESG integration um, that you're speaking of. And that's just in the United States, one third. And it's growing very quickly. Well, what about the other two thirds? Well, you know, the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the Fidelities, they're big firms. They have the other two thirds as well. And so until up and until you, like you said, the, um, the way we invest is inclusive of this by default, uh, they're going to have challenges, you know, sort of tripping over uh, the, the, the global amounts or opportunities for investing to streamline that over time. But we do take this into account when we are working with our client portfolios. And um, we, we think it's, we think like you do, that this is something that's coming because it's growing so very rapidly. My definition of stakeholder capitalism is, it kind of goes back to the whole sort of thesis around capitalism and democracy. You know, capitalism will devour itself over time if you let it. Uh, democracy is there as a balance. And that's what makes this country, you know, so fantastic. It's what made it so successful over these past 200 plus years is that there has been a balance of capitalism and democracy. And whenever we have challenges with that, whether it's during the Robert Barron era of the 1900s, um, whether it's during the Roaring Twenties, uh, whether it's, you know, right after the Financial Modernization Act of 1999, which leads in seven years to the economic collapse of 2008, whenever we've had these problems, it's because there's been an imbalance between the government's role, i.e. our democracy's role, and capitalism's role. And we always have to work to uh, even up that balance so that we get the benefits of capitalism, which we have as the biggest economy in the world, and the benefits of you know, really good democracy, even as a republic. And so I look at stakeholder capitalism as, as the concept, as the phrase we needed <laughs> to be able to say what the heck this is. But it isn't new, in my view. It's, uh, it's just a really good term that we can use to get a little bit more clear. And hopefully over time, we'll be able to depoliticize it and really just work for the greater good. Can I steal your definition next time I get that question? Please do. I, I don't remember what I just said. So please do. Um, no, that'd be great. Um, well, let's move on to the next question here. How can uh, consumers and investors measure this thing uh, called stakeholder capitalism? Yeah, that can be really, really tricky. That When I mentioned the goal of our research was to figure out how we can um, encourage the scale and making ESG and stakeholder capitalism the majority. The biggest challenge that we found was it's so hard to measure it and figure out what's going on. It's really tough. And I think what is difficult right now is that a lot of um, ESG and socially responsible ratings providers that are really popular um, have a particular methodology and approach that is relying on their analyst opinion. And their analysts are determining that transparency counts this much. 
and that human rights counts that much and that financing fossil fuels counts this much and direct emissions counts X and uh, indirect emissions counts Y or whatever Mm -hmm. that may be. Yeah. And for some people that might not matter at all because uh, maybe your, your mother died of lung cancer and what makes a company ethical and what you care about is, are they a tobacco company? And I don't, it doesn't matter if they're the most diverse company with great climate policies, if they're producing tobacco, that's not something for you. So that, but for other people, they may be, they may be totally fine with tobacco and they would care about climate impact or human rights or whatever else it may be. So that's the biggest challenge I think that exists right now in measuring stakeholder capitalism is that there are ratings that are out there that are a particular ratings provider's opinion. And that's something that's available for people to see, but it's really hard to find out how much a company or, or a fund aligns with your own values. And yeah. mm-hmm, go for it. Well, let's lean into that a little bit because I have heard this from people who who have uh, this, this very strong opinion about ESG and, and related types of investing. And they say that very thing, because there are about 10 or 11 rating agencies, and the data shows that they're off by a wide chasm on what they believe one way or another. Mm-hmm. And people point to that and say, well, look how off they are. That's ridiculous. Because if you look at, say, the bond rating companies, you know, they're off by fractions of percentages. So they're so much better. To them, I say, well, was that better during the 2008 crisis <laughs> where we had three bond agencies that kind of all said the same thing and created the fault swaps that were all terrific and then they all crashed yeah. at the same time? So it's a, it's a you know, sort of a specious argument if, um, if that alone is your reasoning, the fact that they're different. But I, I do know, and I, I know that you know, that they, they evaluate things differently and at the very least we need to be able to easily understand what those evaluations mean, whether it's MSCI or Thomson Reuters or Bloomberg. Do you think there's enough transparency about how these rating agencies are developing their content? Yeah, that's a a perfect question. And one other thing that I add to that is a lot of the rating, I think the biggest uh, point of confusion that exists is that ESG and impact oftentimes get mushed into the same concept when they're very different. ESG is, hey, let's look at these environmental and social factors and governance factors and see which of them correlate the most with financial performance. Hey, it turns out gender diversity, when you have more gender diversity, you you tend to perform a lot better financially. So that's kind of ESG, which of these metrics lead to that? But then impact is very different. Some people might want to invest in companies that have high diversity for outperformance perspective, um, an outperformance perspective, but other people might just care about gender diversity uh, or, or racial diversity or whatever it may be and want to invest in those companies from an impact alignment perspective. So generally these rating agencies, they're looking at those correlations. They're looking at which metrics are the most relevant and most material for corporate financial performance. And it's very similar to, I guess, investment analyst opinions, right? Where you've seven buys and three hold recommendations Uh and four sell recommendations, there's going to be divergence. So uh, that's something that I think explains why there's divergence there. And then uh, from the impact side, 
no one can tell you the impact of a company without you first uh, saying what you care about, because it's really specific to just like no one can say that this politician is good. Well, it, it depends on you agree with their policies. Or not. <laughs> right. right. Uh, great point. And there, and there's so much there, but I, I want to, I think we'll get a little bit of it when we speak a little bit about your stake. So, so tell us about your stake.org. Uh, you know, when you put this together with, uh, with your partner and really how does it separate this, this, you know, or I guess help solve this challenge around data. Sure. So your stake takes, sometimes we call it a no score ESG approach where we're not ratings analysts providing opinions and telling you that this is a 6.8 out of 10. We are providing, well, first, what we do is help advisors and, and you're using this tool, um, Jason, is help your, help your clients figure out what values they care about most and that they want to incorporate into their investments. Start with that personalization of what really matters to you. And then from there, uh, what we provide is fully transparent reporting on how your portfolio might be relating to and interacting with the particular values and the specific values that you say you care about. So if you, for example, care about uh, toxic air pollution, um, we might call you a planet protector. You might be someone that is an environmentalist and um, if you want to look at the toxic air pollution within your portfolio, what your stake is providing is not a toxic air pollution score. It's not, you get a nine out of 10 on toxic air pollution. We're showing you how much toxic air pollution is in your portfolio compared to your benchmark. And then actually showing where that's coming from, from which companies in your portfolio, which facilities and the description of which chemicals are involved. So our, our solution to this uh, challenge of, ESG confusion is personalization and transparency to help make the ESG a lot more meaningful. What I, I would love to uh, pick up on again is that no score ESG. That's I hadn't heard that phrase or read that in your materials before, but it's interesting. My guess is the Bloomberg's, the Thomson Reuters, the As You Says, all these other organizations, MSCI, they created scores to make it easier so that people could say a nine or a six or a four or a three, I can get that. Or triple A or triple C makes it easier. But by covering up the data in that way, it, it sort of invites this opportunity for confusion, right? Especially since they have different numbers, because it might be nine out of 10 here, it might be 86% here. Mm -hmm. How do you compare those two? You say that your stake kind of came at this with no scoring. Here's the actual data, and this is how you can compare it. Totally. And the ESG data industry was created to serve the needs of a portfolio manager that needs a lot of scores. And then you, you want to pick, you want to get rid of the ones with the worst scores and take the ones with the best scores and, and to make it easy. Exactly. But uh, there was never really that translation from these scores to meaningful client reporting. And that made it challenging for, you said financial advisors might be the gatekeepers to ESG earlier. That's what makes it hard for a financial advisor to get excited about ESG is they might have an optimized and efficient ESG portfolio. But if you can't tell the story and communicate that to a client, then that's not something that will actually provide meaning and, and help your practice. And if you're a client, um, especially because so many people have so many different values on ESG, if you're given an 8.6 out of 10, that doesn't necessarily mean that much, even if, again, it's optimized and, and efficient from an ESG perspective. 
the, the people that are actually the asset owners and that um, are deploying this capital and investing it want to know more about what things really mean. One of the things that was appealing about your stake, and in, in case it's interesting for people, uh, yeah, we are a client of yourstake.org. After a pretty heavy search of looking for different tools that we could use and feel very comfortable with to use for our clients, and um, and this really bubbled up to the top. So one of the things that we appreciated that sort of bubbled up to the top is that you're not reliant on the back end from just the corporation's voluntary data submission. You're actually going and looking at other data. Talk about that. Sure. Um, some of the biggest challenges with voluntary corporate reporting is that companies <laughs> are oftentimes sneaky. <laughs> they, they're putting this reporting out because they it's a marketing thing for them, right? So um, you can always tell, for example, I was looking through a bunch of sustainability reports. You can always tell that a company is embarrassed about uh, it's percent women in management positions when it doesn't report it's percent women in management positions. <laughs> okay. But instead, what it does report is the percent of new promotions that are female. Or it, it will report some other like tangential, the, the percent of women in management in the USA or in whatever subset. So companies are not consistent necessarily in their methodologies for reporting this information a lot of companies don't disclose it and it, it makes it hard to compare numbers uh, across different companies. On the other hand, when companies, instead of doing a voluntary sustainability report or putting information out on their website, if they're reporting to a government agency or filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, they have to follow a, a strict and, and uh, consistent methodology. And then when third parties like nonprofits or academics uh, collect and create data points um, about particular companies, they are also applying a consistent methodology. So your stake seeks out the best nonprofit data sources, the ones that are being consistently updated, that are fully transparent, and that are already being used by the investor community or the, or the regulatory community to engage with companies. And we try to avoid as much as possible that voluntary company reporting, which can have inconsistent methodologies and are really meant as promotional marketing materials. And a funny thing, there was a recent JD Power study um, that had company websites and reporting as the, the number two place where people get their uh, ESG data from, I think only after social media. Uh, so wow. the, the sources okay. that people are currently getting their data on sustainability from from uh, corporate side, well, th maybe this counts as social media if we're going on Facebook Live. Maybe it does. Um, <laughs> but there's... Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of need for standardization and um, comparability and rigor in this field. Yeah, and education. And maybe you'll dark matter the stuff and it'll all <laughs> um, be simple enough for us to understand. Well, where do you see stakeholder capitalism going? And, and maybe you could include in your answer where you see the tool that you created going in the next, say, six months. Sure. I think stakeholder capitalism, uh, what's needed is still more education. Um, and that's why I'm really, really glad to be on this podcast in particular is what there's so much confusion out there and so much uh, lack of knowledge about the power of stakeholder capitalism and how every single individual, um, if you have a retirement 
fund, if you have a retirement account, uh, if you're an employee of a company, really everyone can use their power and their voice to align their investments with their values and also encourage companies to uh, align their operations with what you as an individual care about. There's a lot of power in these numbers. And where I see it going in the next few months and your state going in the next few months is providing that education so that people can know first what's going on in your portfolio already. Uh, does that line up with what you expected? Uh, it's really fun to see how many people are shocked to see companies that they are horrified by in their portfolio and then they can actually take action to do something about that. Uh, so step one is that uh, knowledge and, and understanding process. And that's what your stake is currently suited for. It's a diagnostic. Where is your uh, portfolio right now? Where can it, where can it go? Where can it be? How can it be better? And then step two is um, actually something that your stake is getting more and more involved with is the community side of stakeholder capitalism um, is uh, the proxy voting side of stakeholder capitalism is that using your voice side of stakeholder capitalism. So when you see that some company in your portfolio has a tremendous amount of toxic air pollution uh, or has zero female directors or uh, is providing financing to prison companies uh, and you don't like that, then actually the way that your stake started and what we're moving more and more in the direction of is allowing people to let their fund managers or let their companies know, and, and this is not something that I'm aligned with. Hey, I'm a shareholder and I don't, or I invest in your mutual fund and I don't align with uh, the prison industry and kind of more and more people activating using their voice. And we found the best way actually is channeling that voice through your financial advisor. So essentially you, Jason, uh, and, and other advisors like you, representing the values of your clients, helping them invest in companies that align with those values, but no company is perfect. So recognizing the ability to use voice and, and proxy vote and sign on to investor letters to encourage companies to change and, uh, and help create a, a more impactful society. And so that's your stake is going to facilitate some of that in the future. Yeah. No, it's terrific. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the idea of proxy voting, you know, you get proxy votes in your mail all the time, or maybe sent to you via email, and it's typically something people will just toss, but it really is an opportunity to vote on things like the board of directors at, oh, I don't know, an Exxon. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say just last week where we had a historic event mm. that two, two new board directors were elected slash appointed to Exxon from activists that were managing the proxy votes of many, many different people to say, hey, uh, fossil fuel you know, company, we'd like you to start looking at climate change and, and improving what you're doing and, and everything else. And to do that, we'd like you to have new directors. That I don't believe has ever happened before. And the fact that it did happen with Exxon, formerly the most profitable company in the world, is a real big deal and a historic event. And it's pretty neat that your stake is going to help not only some clients, but our clients, let's say, work <laughs> in that kind of world of proxy voting. So thank you for that, Gabe. I do appreciate it. All right. And I know our clients do. I'm going to stop the share here. So prepare for, actually, I usually say bigger faces. I don't think we're going to get a bigger face than this one, um, but you know, smaller faces to some degree. Uh, so glad, Gabe, that you came to explain just some of how your tool works. 
but also the genesis of why you did it, where you see it going, and really why it's just so important that we as consumers and especially investors find a way to impact the world through the way we invest our retirement, our, our brokerages, uh, just the way that we take our accumulated funds and do really good with it long-term. For me, I, I'm so excited that we're going to be able to do that more and more with our clients. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a millionaire to do this if you get to work with folks that have had some pretty good savings. So it's pretty exciting. Well, let me say this, uh, Gabe, before we go, I know Prospect Park is something we should check out if we're ever in New York. So Definitely. I've learned that if nothing else, and hopefully everyone that watches this will learn that, but not not crowd the park too much with um, what you uh, what you enjoy on a daily basis. But can you leave us with one bullet point of what you think is perhaps the most important thing we take away from this conversation? This is what drove me into what I'm doing. Uh, there's so much potential to shape the world and, and create change in the way that you wanna see it uh, through your portfolios and, and through investments. And um, Jason, I have so much admiration for your work in helping to guide people to do that in a, through philanthropy, through their investment portfolios and do it in a way where they can continue to grow their wealth and not have that fear uh, of, of still being able to have a, a healthy and happy retirement. The potential exists it starts with education. It starts with understanding, building an understanding of what's actually happening and going on. Um, but there's just so much ability to uh, create change and, and have real impact and not just a pat on the back. Um, and I'm, I'm really honored to uh, be able to be in the space and, and work with people like you uh, to try to help make that a reality. Um, Terrific. Yeah. Gabe Risman, uh, former astrophysicist. <laughs> Dark Matter aficionado, prospect park plunderer, and uh, co-founder of YourStake.org. Thank you for being with us. We have learned so much. And with that, we'll yield the balance of your afternoons. Take care. <laughs>